...dance in housewifely arts, and prettier than ever, for love is a great beautifier. She had her girlish ambitions and hopes, and felt some disappointment at the humble way in which the new life must begin. Ned Moffat had just married Sally Gardner, and Meg couldn't help contrasting their fine house and carriage, many gifts and splendid outfit, with her own, and secretly wishing she could have the same. But somehow envy and discontent soon vanished when she thought of all the patient love and labor John had put into the little home awaiting her. And when they sat together in the twilight, talking over their small plans, the future always grew so beautiful and bright that she forgot Sally's splendor and felt herself the richest, happiest girl in Christendom. Joe never went back to Aunt Marge for the old lady took such a fancy to Amy that she bribed her with the offer of drawing lessons from one of the best teachers going. And for the sake of this advantage, Amy would have served a far harder mistress. So she gave her mornings to duty, her afternoons to pleasure, and prospered finely. Jo, meantime, devoted herself to literature and Bess, who remained delicate long after the fever was a thing of the past. Not an invalid, exactly, but never again the rosy, healthy creature she had been. Yet always hopeful, happy, and serene, busy with the quiet duties she loved, everyone's friend and an angel in the house, long before those who loved her most had learned to know it. As long as the spread eagle paid her a dollar a column for her rubbish, as she called it, Jo felt herself a woman of means and spun her little romances diligently. But great plans fermented in her busy brain and ambitious mind, and the old tin kitchen in the garret held a slowly increasing pile of blotted manuscript, which was one day to place the name of March upon the roll of fame. Laurie, having dutifully gone to college to please his grandfather, was now getting through it in the easiest possible manner to please himself. A universal favorite, thanks to money, manners, much talent, and the kindest heart that ever got its owner into scrapes by trying to get other people out of them, he stood in great danger of being spoiled, and probably would have been, like many another promising boy, if he had not possessed a talisman against evil in the memory of the kind old man who was bound up in his success, the motherly friend who watched over him as if he were her son, and last, but not least by any means, the knowledge that four innocent girls loved, admired, and believed in him with all their hearts. Being only a glorious human boy, of course he frolicked and flirted, grew dandified, aquatic, sentimental, or gymnastic, as college fashions ordained, hazed and was hazed, talked slang, and more than once came perilously near suspension and expulsion. But as high spirits and the love of fun were the causes of these pranks, he always managed to save himself by frank confession, honorable atonement, or the irresistible power of persuasion which he possessed in perfection. In fact, he rather prided himself on his narrow escapes, and liked to thrill the girls with graphic accounts of his triumphs over wrathful tutors, dignified professors, and vanquished enemies." The men of my class were heroes in the eyes of the girls who never wearied of the exploits of our fellows and were frequently allowed to bask in the smiles of these great creatures when Laurie brought them home with him. Amy especially enjoyed this high honor and became quite a belle among them 
for her ladyship early felt and learned to use the gift of fascination with which she was endowed. Meg was too much absorbed in her private and particular John to care for any other lords of creation, and Beth too shy to do more than peep at them and wonder how Amy dared to order them about so. But Joe felt quite in her element and found it very difficult to refrain from imitating the gentlemanly attitudes, phrases, and feats, which seemed more natural to her than the decorums prescribed for young ladies. They all liked Joe immensely, but never fell in love with her, though very few escaped without paying the tribute of a sentimental sigh or two at Amy's shrine. And speaking of sentiment brings us very naturally to the dovecote. That was the name of the little brown house which Mr. Brooke had prepared for Meg's first home. Laurie had christened it, saying it was highly appropriate to the gentle lovers, who went on together like a pair of turtle doves, with first a bill and then a coo. It was a tiny house, with a little garden behind and a lawn about as big as a pocket handkerchief in front. Here Meg meant to have a fountain, shrubbery, and a profusion of lovely flowers— Though just at present the fountain was represented by a weather-beaten urn, very like a dilapidated slot bowl, the shrubbery consisted of several young larches, undecided whether to live or die, and the profusion of flowers was merely hinted by regiments of sticks to show where seeds were planted. But inside it was altogether charming, and the happy bride saw no fault from garret to cellar. To be sure, the hall was so narrow it was fortunate that they had no piano, for one never could have been got in whole. The dining room was so small that six people were a tight fit, and the kitchen stairs seemed built for the express purpose of precipitating both servants and china pell-mell into the coal bin. But once get used to these slight blemishes, and nothing could be more complete, for good sense and good taste had presided over the furnishing, and the result was highly satisfactory. There were no marble-top tables, long mirrors, or lace curtains in the little parlor, but simple furniture, plenty of books, a fine picture or two, a stand of flowers in the bay window, and, scattered all about, the pretty gifts which came from friendly hands and were the fare for the loving messages they brought. I don't think the Parian psyche Laurie gave lost any of its beauty because John put up the bracket it stood upon. "'that any upholsterer could have draped the plain muslin curtains "'more gracefully than Amy's artistic hand, "'or that any storeroom was ever better provided with good wishes, "'merry words, and happy hopes "'than that in which Joe and her mother put away Meg's few boxes, barrels, and bundles. "'And I am morally certain that the spandy-new kitchen "'never could have looked so cozy and neat "'if Hannah had not arranged every pot and pan a dozen times over "'and laid the fire all ready for lighting "'the minute Miss Brooke came home. "'I also doubt if any young matron ever began life "'with so rich a supply of dusters, holders, and piece bags, "'for Beth made enough to last till the silver wedding came round "'and invented three different kinds of dishcloths "'for the express service of the bridal china.' People who hire all these things done for them never know what they lose, for the homeliest tasks get beautified if loving hands do them, and Meg found so many proofs of this that everything in her small nest, from the kitchen roller to the silver vase on her parlor table, was eloquent of home love and tender forethought. What happy times they had planning together, 
what solemn shopping excursions, what funny mistakes they made, and what shouts of laughter arose over Laurie's ridiculous bargains. In his love of jokes, this young gentleman, though nearly through college, was as much of a boy as ever. His last whim had been to bring with him, on his weekly visits, some new, useful, and ingenious article for the young housekeeper. Now a bag of remarkable clothespins, next a wonderful nutmeg grater, which fell to pieces at the first trial, a knife cleaner that spoilt all the knives, or a sweeper that picked the nap neatly off the carpet and left the dirt, labor-saving soap that took the skin off one's hands, infallible cements which stuck firmly to nothing but the fingers of the deluded buyer, and every kind of tinware, from a toy savings bank for odd pennies to a wonderful boiler which would wash articles in its own steam, with every prospect of exploding in the process. In vain Meg begged him to stop. John laughed at him, and Joe called him Mr. Toodles. He was possessed with a mania for patronizing Yankee ingenuity and seeing his friends fitly furnished forth, so each week beheld some fresh absurdity. Everything was done at last, even to Amy's arranging different colored soaps to match the different colored rooms, and Beth's setting the table for the first meal. Are you satisfied? Does it seem like home, and do you feel as if you should be happy here? asked Mrs. March, as she and her daughter went through the new kingdom arm in arm, for just then they seemed to cling together more tenderly than ever. Yes, mother, perfectly satisfied, thanks to you all, and so happy that I can't talk about it, answered Meg, with a look that was better than words. If she only had a servant or two, it would be all right, said Amy, coming out of the parlor, where she had been trying to decide whether the bronze mercury looked...